Blog Talk Radio. Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Hitch up your reindeer. Go straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus. Go straight to the ghetto. Fill every stocking you find. The kids are gonna love you so. Uh, leave a toy for Johnny. Leave a doll for Mary. Leave something pretty for Johnny. And don't forget about Gary. Santa Claus. Go straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Tell him James Brown sent you. <laughs> go straight to the ghetto. You know that I know what you will see. Cause that was once me. Hit it. Hit it. You see mothers and soul brothers. Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus, oh Lord, go straight to the ghetto. Fill every stock and you find the kids are gonna love you so. Fill every stock and you find they know that they need you so. I'm begging you, Santa Claus. Go straight to the ghetto. If anyone wanna know, tell them Hank Ballard so, so. Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Never thought I'd realize I'd be singing a song with water in my eyes. Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Nothing for me I've had my chance You see Down the ground Straight to the ghetto Santa Claus That soul brother needs So Santa Claus And good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm L.A. Bachelor. We thank you for joining us uh, this evening and every evening. Uh, you could be doing anything else, and uh, you decided to check in with us. We certainly do appreciate you doing so. The number to reach us, 646-929-0130, uh, is the number. And um, our chat room is open there. If you listen online uh, at our, our blog talk place, uh, you certainly can uh, look at us there or, or chat with us there, I should say. Uh, we appreciate you wherever you are uh, tuning in to the show. 
uh, right now. Uh, you can also hit us up on Facebook at Pad Nation, on Twitter, Pad Nation 2, uh, on uh, YouTube as well. If you're watching live, definitely hit us up there. want to go to my guest. Always a pleasure to have him on. Not as much as I'd like to, but he always comes on with great insight and articles. He is an award-winning author whose most recent book is the novel In Motion. Uh, he is Andy Piasek and Andy, I appreciate you coming on. I hope all is well with you and your family in this this COVID time and your holiday time. Well, thanks for that, L.A. Yes, uh, everybody's doing okay, struggling a little, but in good health, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been in some kind of 2020, to say the least. Uh, you know, we played a song about Santa Claus going straight to the ghetto. You wrote an article uh, I thought was a brilliant article on mutual aid, but you talked about uh, more specifically Bridgeport mutual aid where you reside in, in Connecticut and, and took uh, the history of mutual aid. Talk about what led to writing this article and, and explain to people what mutual aid is. Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, because of the crises that we've gone through this year, because of the COVID pandemic primarily, we've seen a dramatic increase in mutual aid activity. And that's largely because people were seeing a definite need among their neighbors and people wherever they were living on the one hand, and the totally inadequate, if not criminal, lack of response at various levels of government, particularly the federal level, but other levels as well. Mutual aid, in a nutshell, is basically people banding together to address whatever needs they may have, especially in some kind of a crisis, although it doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis. And for the most part, it's a kind of localized activity where people in your neighborhood or in the same city that you live in, community, however you want to define it, band together to address a problem that they're seeing. But it can also be national or even international in scope, and it has been uh, as it's played out over the centuries, really. As I say at the beginning of the article, I mean, it's been a key thing to the survival of the human species going back to the earliest days of human beings. Um, I think the narrative that we are told is this kind of Darwinian, each person for themselves, survival of the fittest kind of uh, ideology. In reality, I think what you see much more frequently is people being aware of the commonality and of the vulnerability of the group as a whole with any part of the group being in danger. So it's really something that, even though people didn't use the phrase mutual aid, has been kind of central to human societies as far back as you want to go and persists, you know, right up until this day in many, many different forms. Well, let's talk about some of those forms because, um, you know, mutual aid essentially. Um, is, you know, these is social programs uh, nationally, uh, let's keep it here in the United States. And so 
you define it as such, um, some would call it, um, you know, public housing or food stamps or whatever the federal government has to do or the, the local government has to do, the state government has to do. Do you think that mutual aid in, in that aspect is sort of a, uh, a dirty word now that um, uh, this country, as we've seen 70 million people, uh, voted for someone who would, would, wouldn't be for any kind of aid, um, typically, I guess, would, would say that a lot of people in this country feel that that type of aid is um, bleeding the country, if you will. Well, I think we should distinguish a couple of things. Um, first of all, mutual aid does not really address specifically government programs per se. I mean, government programs that are designed to assist with individuals who are low income or without housing or without jobs or whatever is essential and has come about historically through organized pressure and organized resistance by large segments of the population. When we're talking about mutual aid, it's a, it's a kind of more specific term as far as people at the ground level kind of without very much or any assistance from the powers that be organizing themselves. So in other words, when I got into um, some of the historical uh, references that are just recent, and these are just mostly from the last 50 or 60 years, I mentioned the Black Panther Party that came into being in the 1960s. And one of their touchstone programs was a free breakfast for children, which they established in many, many cities around the country. Oftentimes it was seven days a week, depending on how the resources were and um, how long they were able to implement it. And it came about from an express need, a very clear need in communities where children were often going to school without having eaten breakfast. And so the, Kickoff was sort of people who had some understanding of the problems and took some initiative to address uh, what could be done about it. And then as the Black Panther Party grew and developed and established new kinds of work, there were responses from people in the community as to what else was needed. People who had some expertise came forward and offered their services. So you ended up also with things like um, free schools, where there was a kind of Afrocentric curriculum. History was taught in a kind of more honest way than it was taught in the public school system, say. You also had mobile health clinics where um, committed healthcare workers and others who maybe could do jobs that weren't professional in orientation, like drive the vehicle or whatever might be involved, would go to underserviced communities where there were few clinics or few doctor's offices with uh, portable x-ray machines. They would do um, sickle cell testing. There was probably a phlebotomist on hand at some point so that if necessary, they could draw blood for lab work. Um, and any number of other things. I'm really just sort of uh, t touching the tip of the iceberg here. And that's just one organization. And 
clearly what you have is what I started off with in the beginning, a crisis situation impacting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, from basically what you could call intentional neglect. And people took it upon themselves to respond as best as they could um, with tapping resources from sympathetic supporters in the area, um, et cetera. So while on the one hand, absolutely, I think one part of our activism, say, has to be to continue to keep the heat on government at all levels to provide better health care, more unemployment benefits, better jobs, better job protection, all that kind of stuff, some of which is completely unrelated to the pandemic. I mean, all these problems existed to some degree even before coronavirus hit. But I think that the coronavirus epidemic has brought more of them to the forefront and has, you know, in, inspired, I guess you could say, people to take up stuff that clearly needs to be done and is not being done adequately enough by government level at any level. If you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, Andy Piasek, of course, uh, here on the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network and uh, WCOM in uh, Chapel Hill. Andy, I, I want to stay with your point of the Black Panthers because uh, not to uh, – take it in a different direction um, because of some need to do so, but I think the Black Panthers is a prime example of the mutual aid, as you mentioned, the, the, the feeding breakfast program for, for kids and the, the, the mobile health clinics they established, all the things they did, but the perception of them as being just this militant group that wanted to kill Whitey, quote-unquote, um, and did nothing. Uh, they just were against the police, against the white establishment, and they were just angry men with guns. Um, really is the perception of people, not just in that time, uh, but those who didn't really study and understand what black, the Black Panther uh, Party was doing, uh, aside, aside from wanting um, this social and political um, equality, economic equality, um, they did so much good for the people and specifically kids. And I think that gets lost in the entire historical uh, realm of the, the movement that the black party had and still has. Well, and I think that that distortion of history is intentional. It's intentional because of the threat that the black Panther party posed to the system now, certainly, to be clear, there were segments of the Black Panther Party that was kind of over the top in terms of seeking confrontation, often seeking confrontation with police, of putting way too much emphasis on picking up the gun and having shootouts, uh, you know, in completely kind of inappropriate ways. But I think the emphasis on that is totally out of proportion to what the work was that they actually did. And it's also done specifically to obscure the, the work that we're talking about that was done. Obviously, it's also done to obscure the fact that they were under tremendous attack, violent attack, assassination, murder from the state. Um, so the attempt to 
paint them as the provocateurs who brought all this stuff down on themselves is also another part of the lie that is told about the history of the Black Panther Party. But the good thing is that there's all kinds of great scholarship and writing and uh, documentary movies and all kinds of things coming out. Yohuru Williams, who is actually a native of Bridgeport and for many years was a professor here at Fairfield University, has put together a couple of books about the kind of cadre, the rank-and-file members of the Black Panther Party and what the work they did in various cities look like. And he's just one. I mean, Judson Jeffries, Jama Lazaro, and any number of others, plus uh, accounts told by members of the party themselves who weren't at the national level, who worked more in places like Baltimore and other cities, I have yet really to see any good accounts about the work that they did here in Bridgeport. But, you know, um, so much of the emphasis is on Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton and the national leaders who, like everybody else, were flawed human beings. And some of their flaws were very kind of detrimental to the work that the group was trying to do as a whole. But um, I think when you dig deeper and you get down into what the rank and file were doing and in the cities outside of Oakland and New York, uh, where uh, there was good work being done in those places as well. But the Black Panther Party was so much more than just the small number of national leaders who became sort of the symbols for this, uh, you know, campaign of uh, fear. You know, we we, we all need to really be afraid of these people. Yeah, and I I, I think what you said, you know, I, a lot of it I agree with. Um, I also believe that they believe that, you know, and and even in in 2020, as you see people protesting, um, many of which do not carry guns. They, I think the feeling was the same, whether it been. In that time and now that we sick and tired of being sick and tired Um, and, you know, the methods um, certainly, you know, people would say weren't right, but black folks and and minorities are sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I I get what you're saying, though. Um, You know, this 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 debate or this discussion, this this article that you wrote on, on Mutual Aid, really, Andy, could be looked at two different ways, for and against, but in the same, but at the same, um, what am I trying to say? At the end of the day, it's still Mutual Aid. In other words, people who see the needs, and we'll get to Bridgeport in a second, see the needs to help people that are poor, that are hungry, that have no health insurance, um, want to help their brothers and sisters. They are their brother's keepers. Um, they have that uh, feeling of uh, helping in their community. Um, so it gets done then. And then you have the side that feels like, uh, again, going back to, whether it's local, state, or federal government that feels like you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, we don't want to help you, so go ahead. If you want to help yourself, hey, that's more, less work that we have to do at, at any kind of local level or national or state level. We don't have to provide these things. If you guys want to do it, that, that just helps us. That cuts the deficit and, and so on and, and so forth. 
Well, I think the best way to address your second point is simply to say it's one part of an overall strategy with greater social change in mind. We are, I mean, people who engage in mutual aid are in no means letting any government agency off the hook or are saying that there's no role for the government to play in terms of implementing um, better programs. I would say virtually every single person in the country who's involved in mutual aid, for example, is pushing hard for some kind of new stimulus bill that would include way beyond anything that they're really seriously talking about. You know, Mm. a couple thousand dollars a month per person in guaranteed income, for example, until the pandemic is over and maybe even beyond, because the economy is clearly going to be damaged beyond repair, even as they're hauling out these vaccines. So I think that um, the there, there may be certainly people who would react the way that you're describing, like, you know, go do it because then we don't have to do it. But that's not really, I think, what our message is. Our message is that we're doing it both because it's needed to be done, but also because we're trying to build a togetherness um, by so you start clearly with a core group of activists, maybe, but the goal all along while you're providing whatever the aid is that's in question is to also galvanize and engage all the people that you reach to underscore to them that, look, this is a basic human right that you're entitled to, but the only way that we're really going to get it is by working together So even if you may not have any experience as an organizer or whatever, you can come and you can participate, too, because while it may be you who's getting this uh, box of groceries every day during this pandemic, there's something that you can do for other people as well. And the more people that we have involved in doing this work, the more that we can do. And it also creates a, a whole chain reaction of, yeah, this is the way the society as a whole can function. You know, you said uh, we are all my sisters and brothers keepers. I mean, that's a basic motto that people can live by and that we clearly have gotten very, very far away from in this society. Um, So I think, yes, you do. Why is that, Andy? Why, why Why have we gotten away from that in this society, you think? Well, because it's profitable for a, a, a very small number of people who have become unfathomably wealthy. I mean, wealthy beyond anything that we can comprehend. I mean, when you're talking mm. about billions and billions of dollars of wealth for one family or one individual, I mean, people read that or they hear it on news or they see it on TV when, you know, there's some kind of game show or, you know, gee, don't you wish you could get some cut of that, you know, which is kind of dangled in front of all of us as, you know, look, see, if you figure out the right angle, you can get your cut of all this wealth, which is really not at all true, because if it were true, then all more of us would be doing better. But, you know, the system is founded on a lot of things, including white supremacy and the repression of all people of color, but it's also founded on this totalitarian control, really, that 
small mm. segments of the population have over our economic life, and they're clearly making it known that they're not giving it up. Not only are they not giving it up, but if you look at people like Jeff Bezos and some of these others, Mark Zuckerberg and um, other billionaires, they're making money hand over fist this year. 2020 has been the most profitable year ever for some of these billionaire elites. And, you know, I mean, if you need more evidence as to how the sunk society is completely dysfunctional, why is it that in a time of dire need for literally tens of millions of people, more and more of the society's resources is being concentrated into the hands of the people who need it. But but that's the foundation of a profit system. And until, you know, until we get our forces together strong enough and do more of this work that we need to do, um, we are going to be continuing to be at their mercy, really. Um, not to mention, you know, well, what you mentioned that we can get into a little if you want about these ultra-right fanatics uh, who are so solidly in the Trump camp and who I think really present a tremendous threat to the future of the country. But that's maybe another discussion. Well, I, I mean, just absolutely. If you if you you think about it, again, 70 million people decided um, because uh, of white supremacy or because they feel that he's going to put money. This this man, the, the crazy thing about it is, and I, I don't understand um, the segment of people who, let's say, those out of those millions, some of which are not racist, that he's not one of you, folks. He's not. He's never sweat a paycheck. He's never sweat a paycheck. He's not one of you. He sold you a bill of goods and you bought it. And and the consequences will be there. Um, and well, and, and he, socialism he, he, is, a, is a nasty word, too, by the way. Socialism is, and socialists is such a bad word. But go ahead. You were going to say. Well, and he's still grifting because these millions and millions of dollars, I think it's a 200 million is the last that I saw that's being contributed to supposedly help with the uh, effort to challenge the stolen election. He's going to end up with most of that money when all is said and done because he doesn't have to return it. There's no legal obligation right. that he return it or that it be used all on what it's supposed to be used on. But as far as um, I think it's true in the mainstream and certainly the propagandists, even the most liberal, um, want to tar the word socialism as much as possible in a negative light. But the fact right. remains that socialism is now more popular than it was probably since World War II or before that. And more and more people, you know, again, it's not enough, and it's maybe too much it's concentrated in certain parts of the country and not in places where we really need to roll up our sleeves and do battle with these folks. And I'm talking now mostly about white people because the burden for going out to the heartland where so many of these places are run by reactionaries and white supremacists we need more good white young organizers there working on the ground with working class people to show by action not just by talk by action that yes they have absolutely nothing in common with trump or with anybody else who runs this country um so 
I think um, there, you know, and what I see is especially the percentage of young people who are supportive of or at least sympathetic to the idea of socialism has grown astronomically in recent years. And you certainly can figure that out just based on what their life situations are. You know, you have people who are even before the pandemic, but more so during the pandemic, whatever ten, you know, tenuous job situation they had has been undermined. People are having to move back in with their parents. People are having to move back in with roommates when they're way past the age where they ever thought they were going to have to live with a roommate again. So for obvious reasons, you know, people who are in their 20s and maybe their 30s are more grasping uh, or more open to and becoming socialist. So I think the key thing is, yes, we always should question anything that we believe and always look for new ideas that are better or that are prove on our kind of foundation. But once we have some kind of a foundation along the lines of what we're talking about, you really have to kind of deal with mainstream ideology and media as yes that's exactly what you would expect them to say even the most liberal you know i I, i've seen commentators on msnbc who absolutely reject the idea of medicare for all because we can't afford it even though every single study that's done honestly about having it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that it would literally save trillions of dollars a year in healthcare costs, and it'd be more beneficial to people who would now have full health insurance. Um, so I think we have to really always be on guard against letting the powers that be through their media outlets define the terms that we're supposed to debate these issues on, um, you know. And it was just one other thing I wanted to say. I don't know if we're going to be going over my time slot, but I think it's also important while we absolutely have to oppose and work against and denounce where necessary the kind of white supremacist gang, the 70 million people that you mentioned who saw fit to vote for this guy despite everything that's happened over the last four years. We also have to understand, though, that the neoliberal era, as it's called, which has been guided mostly by liberals and moderates, not by people like Trump or Mitch McConnell, but by people like Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and a whole gang of people who, corporate elites and Democratic Party elites, has ravaged, that they've presided over the ravaging of much of the economy of this country from you know, the corporations with the the blessing of the politicians uprooting factories and mills and plants from all kinds of places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, where we now see a groundswell of support for people like Trump. Um, And a lot of those people have been left really in the lurch, trying to survive on minimum wage jobs or low paying jobs where up until the 1970s or 1980s, it was kind of a given that if you grew up and got, you know, your high school education, or even if you were a high school dropout, you could go work for U.S. Steel or Goodyear or in some kind of factory that had a union and had good 
benefits and, you know, uh, understood that a progression of your livelihood would proceed over 25 or 30 years. Not getting into whether it was a good job or a safe job or one, you know, certainly you wake up on Monday morning and a lot of times when you're working in a job like that, the last thing you want to do is go to work at a factory like that. But the bottom line is, you know, the decline in living standards that people in that part of the world and uh, talking mostly now about whites has been very dramatic since the 1970s. And I think one of the reasons that Trump is able to get over with this whole idea that he's some kind of outsider who's going to come to Washington and drain the swamp is because of the tremendous anger, frustration that people have toward elites um, who are largely concentrated on the two coasts and who don't listen, who don't care about what's going on in their communities. This is a great point. Um, and I've been saying that for a long time. Uh, the so-called um, liberals are not really liberal. They're um, uh, moderates, to, to, to say the least. And people are tired of the Clintons and people like that. They're, you know, uh, and, and more specifically, as a black man, um, black people have been, you know, it's you you born and you're a Democrat. And not every black person is for black people. Not every Democrat certainly is for black people. So, um, you know, I, I had I've, I've often said that um, you need to vote for those who are going to help your community. Politics is local. Um, and if you have this elite uh, mentality, really in both parties, but certainly um, if if, peop- if Democrats want to say they're the party of, you know, the, the common person, then you just look no further than Hillary and Bill. Um, and a, even Barack, in a lot of ways, keeping the, the Bush administration's, uh, some of their programs uh, and policies, uh, even after Bush left office. Real quick before you go, um, can you talk about the Bridgeport situation and how it's been really, the city's been really affected, but how these community uh, activists and these organizations are trying to help. Because you made a great point in the article when you talked about how the buses were shut down. It shut off uh, elderly people who depended on their grandkids and, and right. kids to come and help them. And, you know, wheels on meals and all that stuff got really um, reduced because of COVID-19. Talk, talk, talk about Bridgeport. Yes, well, like a lot of places, uh, the Bridgeport mutual aid began in March of this year at the time when the COVID pandemic was really hitting hard. As people may remember, New York City and the outlying areas like where I live in Bridgeport were hit first hardest, more so New York City, but here too. And as things worsened, um, As you mentioned, now the buses are back running and have been for some months, but for a while there, in order to prevent people from being in dangerous situations, the bus routes were stopped. And for people who don't know, Bridgeport is primarily a working class and poor city with a majority people of color population. So people were already struggling, and with the pandemic, everything got worse. So a a relatively small group of people got together and formed Bridgeport Mutual Aid with the specific first goal of 
delivering necessary goods to people in need with an emphasis on those who had some kind of difficulty traveling, even to go so far as to go to a grocery store, which, as you said, maybe if it was elderly folks or disabled, whatever, um, they might normally have been dependent on their children or grandchildren or neighbors, and now all that became much more difficult without buses running and with people being warned to kind of stay away from each other, especially if they weren't immediate uh, living in the same household. So the Bridgeport Mutual Aid began by soliciting goods from uh, um, local farmers in the form of food, but also from grocery stores and other businesses that were willing to contribute excess or stuff that was going to be returned. They also got, I think, some grant for some nonprofit organization that also helped them to purchase things that were needed. And they began to deliver goods where the network of these activists knew they were most needed and where they had some contacts through previous work. And um, so it's been going on four days a week ever since March. The Boxes of food are delivered four days a week and include not just food, but also things like diapers and tampons and toilet paper, which for a while here was in very short supply. And now with winter having hit, um, they're also calling for contributions of things like blankets and any winter clothes that people may be on the verge of getting rid of. So it's really been kind of a important um move to fill needs that people have. And as I mentioned in the article, people have not just been kind of passive receivers, but they have also become, some of them, engaged in the Bridgeport Mutual Aid themselves. So it's a whole way of, I mean, you do need the kind of core of people to get it going and get it operating and kind of have a structure to it. But the long-term goal is, and it's beginning to happen even early on in the first nine months or so of the operation, is for people to see that they can also contribute in other ways to people who may have also the same kind of needs that they do. People they don't even know who live on the other side of town or whatever. So if you have a car and you have a day free where you can spend three hours loading up and delivering groceries, then you can now expand the circle to somebody new and get the word out that this is happening and not just get people what they need, but also draw them in and have them become now a part of the whole thing. So it's been, uh, I mean, it's nowhere near at the scale that's needed. And I think that's probably true every single place where this kind of work is going on, but um, it's a beginning and it certainly um, has the potential to grow into something much larger. Well, it, it's a true uh, uh, a, a true measure of the American or the human spirit, and what people can do in the midst of uh, crises in a uh, epidemic uh, like uh, COVID nineteen. Andy, before you go, great uh, work, of course. Uh, how can people uh, reach out and get your your articles? They can actually contact me directly if they want to get added to my uh, mailing list. Uh, it's Andy Piasic at yahoo.com, A-N-D-Y-P-I-A-S-C-I-K at yahoo.com. 
They can also Google my name around. My articles are published all over the place. I still am yet to get my own blog or website. I keep telling for years that I'm going to do that, but um, my stuff is you know published at Punch. It's published at Z Magazine and ZNet, all different places. So if people are so motivated, certainly they can contact me and either for the purpose of getting on the email list or just to uh, chat and kind of maybe do some common work together or share ideas or whatever. Absolutely. Um, and certainly we'll uh, be posting your information on our new website too. Uh, but Andy, listen, all the best, be well, be safe. I know snow, snow, snow. I don't miss that, uh, back home in our <laughs> state of Connecticut, but, uh, <laughs> you have a great holiday, man. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you. Have a great holiday to you too, LA. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Andy. Andy Piasek is an award-winning author whose most recent book is novel, uh, I'm sorry, book is the novel In Motion. It's called In Motion. Uh, Step away for a few minutes and get to Fred Wittett, HBCU historian and author, great author himself, author of many books on the Bassey News Radio Show. Bells will be ringing the glad, glad news. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. My baby's gone. I have no friends to wish me greetings once again. Why? For Christmas By New Year's night Friends and relations In salutation Cause I'll be happy, 
Welcome back to the show. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Happy holidays to all of you out there and, and you know, uh, best wishes. I want to bring in my guest. Of course, he is an HBCU historian and uh, author uh, of many books, many great books. He is Fred Whitted. And Fred, uh, um, happy holidays to you. I hope all is well with you. Everybody's safe and uh, in the midst of COVID-19. Uh, same to you. Uh, everybody so far, real close, are seem to be doing pretty well. Um, we did lose a couple of friends to COVID oh, a few months ago. Uh, I think it was two. Well, one, one young man I actually kind of grew up with. He was older than I was, and then one of the guys in the class behind me, who was doing very well, very very well. Both were doing very very well in their professions. And you know they, well they somehow or another contracted it, and you know when I see these people talking about, uh, oh you know I got a right and all that other nonsense, well you know they had rights too, and unfortunately because of some of the things we didn't know at the time, and and, and we know better now, it's, you know when you know better you're supposed to do better, and to use these two fine, um, you know man was. Just you know, it, it hit you know, like I said, it hit home. But you know, and then you know, like for the first time in history, in what seventy plus years, we will not be going to the CIAA this year. So that's, I mean, you're talking about a downer. That's a downer. Yeah, uh, and it, it it's you're right. Um, COVID has been really really, really tough on uh, a lot of people. And um, uh, again, condolences to to yours and your, your friends that you, you've lost in in this. Um, you, you mentioned the CIAA, and um, certainly no football there. Um, Swack and Miak are playing at the IAC, not as well. How do you think the HBCUs have handled all of this COVID-19 since it hit, uh, I, I do remember for me, I actually was in Norfolk, literally 10 minutes from the scope, about to check in for the tournament when I got the word that the NCAA shut every da- everything down. Now, I, needless to say, I was very upset because I traveled all the way there and then that happened. But it's been from that time to now, how do you think the HBCUs have uh, handled this uh, COVID-19? I mean, I, I really think they handled it possibly as well as they possibly could, simply because, you know, initially there was so much we didn't know. Uh, you know, we were at the uh, CIAA uh, the last week of February. Uh, then there was another week of play, uh, you know, at the larger schools. And then they had the uh, SIAC tournament, I think, at Winthrop, just south of Charlotte. So, you know, you're talking about maybe 25, 30 miles away from where the CIAA was held. They went, you know, they made it through. And I was actually working at home. Uh, was that, yeah, I think I was, I, don't, I can't remember if I was working at home or was sort of, uh, you know, doing the online thing. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like the, they called everybody on the floor down at the ACC tournament. 
and basically they gathered around in a circle and and basically handed Florida State a trophy and basically get out of here. You know, it was because it was at the time there was still so much we didn't know, and because of that, you know, they, we can't say they handled it all, you know, well or not so well because I mean there were just so many unknowns. But separation was the key to what, uh, you know, what we needed. And unfortunately, you know, as things progressed within a matter of weeks, it was not only, you know, get out of here, we're not going to have basketball, we're not going to play basketball anymore this year. You know, it was cancel track, cancel baseball, softball, you name it, we're not going to do it. And that was kind of what they had to do. Well, uh, as things continued to progress and we – Learn some some more about how this stuff was working. Uh, they sort of acted, you know, along the proper lines. I think, uh, you know, for the most part, they've handled they've handled it as well as anybody else has handled it. As for you know, based on the, the knowledge base, I uh, say so, you know, um, several times you know I've done several interviews about it. You know, and like and I always said, one of my biggest fears was somebody's baby is going to fall out on the floor. Well, we had that happen over mm. the weekend. You know, this young man was having a good game. But all of a sudden, you know, he's coming down the court and plop, he's laying face down on the floor. And Where did this happen, you know, Fred? I didn't hear. Where did this happen? This was a game between Florida, uh, University of Florida, and Florida State. And oh, man. One of the Florida State, one one of the Florida players, collapsed on the floor. I mean, during the game. And wow. you know, I've seen a, a brief video of when Coach uh, Tricky Tom Harris uh, passed out on the sideline at the uh, CIAA tournament back in '82, and uh, and I've seen. Well, you know, what was the, the gentleman? Young man that played for Loyola, that passed out on the court, and right. you know that Hank was Gavis. what that's been almost. Your Hank Gibbs, that's been almost what close to twenty years, maybe. But, yeah. You know those. You know, in, in, a, in what I look at is those situations were, you know, I know Coach uh, Coach Harris's wife said, "Hey, that boy was doing what he loved to do." You know, he, he, he she literally said he died happy. But gathers it was a different situation mm-hmm. because I mean, you know, you, you don't expect that from a what a twenty one, twenty two year old. And he right. had a couple of other incidents because like I think it was I remember one guy passed out like that on a, during a football game. He played for the uh, what was that J C Keene played for the St Louis Cardinals. You know, he he, he t- went to line up to, for the next play and plop, he hit the floor. So, you know, I think the – but, you know, as far as the CIAA and the other conferences, they're doing what they can do. Uh, you know, there's some there's some costs and liability issues that are involved there uh, that, you know, I think they had – you know, in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, they had to look what – look about what they could afford and what was best for them because uh, the – I've heard some numbers being thrown around 
about what it's costing, say, like the Dukes and the Carolinas and so forth, you know, the, all the testing they do for staff and, and players, which is a great thing. But, you know, they have TV contracts that uh, allows them to do some things that they, the small, especially the smaller HBCUs cannot do. Uh, and right now, uh, what they're doing is is working so far. But then, you know, when you look at the again, they look at the grand scheme of things. The young men and women who are in the twenty, what eight, well, eighteen, nineteen year old up to twenty two, twenty three year olds, there's not a, there, you know, most very few of them are going to fall into the that category of early uh, of early vaccination simply because they are considered quote health young and healthy. You know, uh, my sister and I were joking recently in a recent conversation about how do we sneak, how do we slip into that category of of, of, be, of being endangered because you know we're over sixty, and you know we can remember not too long ago we were much 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 younger, and we were the age of those young people there that we were talking about, but see they're not even. Mm. You know, it's going to be hard to justify vaccinate, vaccinating young people like that because they're supposed to be, you know, the the the, the, uh, the medical, the first line, the first, the first, uh, first of uh, first line people who are the medical staffs and the first responders and all those those people are among the first thing they're talking about going to the uh, more mature slash people involved in, in uh, nursing homes and those kind of places because the way they operate, there's almost no way that you can prevent spreading simply because, I mean, you, you just the very nature of those facilities, you got the same people serving room to room now, which does not help things but so much. But then you also have the situation where they are, they, the way they generally operate is through congregation. So if it, if it hits, gets into one person, it's easy to, you know, spreading is almost inevitable. But, yeah, um, I think, again, I think the HBCUs have done a fairly decent job based on our, our knowledge base of in, in what, what they thought was best for, you know, best for the institutions, but also best for the young people because, you know, it's it's cute to say, you know, well, you know, they get an education for for, for their scholarships and all those kind of things, but you know, literally, you could get a job and, and replace us. You could get a part-time job and replace most scholarships, unless you go into a private school, especially. But you know, and if you and if you've ever been a college athlete, you know, you have a job, whether they call it that or not. They take half. They take. They take roughly a thirty a day anyway. 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 Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Talking with Fred Witter here on the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network, WCOM, in Chapel Hill. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, um, the famous actor, of course, uh, played in uh, Black Panther and, and other um, uh, great movies, uh, launched a HBCU basketball tournament to showcase. 
black college talent. We've seen that. We've seen uh, what Deion Sanders is doing. Um, I mean, even before he took the job at uh, Jackson State. Um, Are these type of things or these type of uh, talents and uh, organizations, tournaments, um, are they going to essentially be a lot more in terms of the awareness of of HBCU uh, players with more of these type of uh, situations popping up? Well, there, well, first of all, let me let me put it this way. I think all these pieces that are coming together now are one helpful and two long overdue, because as one person put it very recently, that when you look at the historical uh, uh, foundation of, say, basketball and or football, go back and look at the players and where they came from. If Okay, you live in, in a part of North Carolina that's, quote, a hotbed of basketball, but that's in reference to, say, UNC, NC State, uh, Duke, and then where I went to school, Wake Forest. Okay. On one hand, it's cute to see that in that you know you know Carolina produced Michael Jordan and all that kind of stuff. But remember, there was a time Michael Jordan was not even would not have been allowed on Carolina's campus. So where would Michael have gone? A Central, A and T, Winston Salem State, Elizabeth City, Shaw, Saint Aug, you know wherever. He was not going to Carolina. He was not going to. Um, he was not going to Wake Forest. Uh, you know, just forget that. If it was South Carolina, he wasn't going to Clemson or, or uh, USC. No, forget that. And all too often we forget that that was how it was. So when you look at, uh, you know, like recently I was asked a question about uh, uh, Michael Strahan and, and a couple of other guys in the modern era. I said, well, go back and look. Where did the guys come from who play who played south of D.C. all the way all the way to the Mississippi River and down the other side to states like Oklahoma and Texas? They came from HBCUs, and so the fact that they're talking about all this talent going back to those schools, it's just a matter of getting them in position to compete financially. And see, because I envision that actually within the next three to five years the Power Five schools will not be part of the NCAA as we now know it because there are things that they do or want to do that's telling me that they're not going to be part of the NCAA for so much longer because think about it. If there's money involved, the NCAA does not even control their own championships. I mean, they don't really do the football thing. They, you know, they govern the team, so to speak, but that's put on by an outside entity. Basketball is is almost the same way. It's really, it's really a derivative of the various networks that cover and pay that six million dollars over over how many years that is. So the NCAA has lost control over the big those Power Five schools anyway. So as we continue to progress, 
I don't see where the NCAA is going to be that big of a deal beyond the next five yeah. years. I mean, just because they've already lost control. Right. A lot of people are saying that what what's the even the purpose of uh, the NCAA um, at this point as the, the big kind of power five, I call them the five families, they run the show um, more specifically. Anyway, Fred, last question for you. Um, we've seen, I mentioned uh, before I get to my next guest, we've seen, um, as I mentioned, Deion Sanders taking over Jackson State, he's bringing his kids in. We've seen other uh, famous people, either, uh, I should say, former great athletes or, or, or former players, football, basketball, and each sport, come and, and take over programs, both at the HBCU level and, and let's say, the PWIs. Um, how much is it of on the field, would it help uh, Deion Sanders coming to Jackson State um, on the field, or is it more of he can bring in the recruits and then surround himself by some great coaches and the program flourishes that way? Well, that's that's the way any of them work, realistically. Uh, I just finished, uh, recently finished doing the uh, uh, statistics on uh, HBCU women's basketball and you'd be amazed to me at the number of okay the, the, the real value of a Deion Sanders is the glitz and the glamour and the you know the, the you know shading the shining the bright lights beyond that it's all about football basketball whatever the sport is okay he has I mean the good coaches surround themselves with good staffs we saw that with Rod Broadway and how you know he put together a good staff at, at Central at Grambling and then later at A&T. That's all any coach does. Now, if people there are there is a there is a group of people out there who think that it's, there's some some real magic to it. It's still football. And if they, as in as in um, Deion Sanders and his staff can't come t- to grips with football as football and and if they think they're going to lay down for them, they can forget that because right now I would venture to say that Coach Farbs at, at Gramlin, McNair at Alcorn, and just go right on down the list, they want them some Deion Sanders in his his players and coaching staff. I mean, yeah, it's gonna, I think it's going to boost attendance and it's going to get a lot of light shine. I mean, you, you've already seen – the, the great amount of light being shine, shown on Jackson State as it is, but then when it comes to football, it's just going to be football. If they can't coach, their players can't deliver. And see, he, he just signed—you know—he just finished his signing class, but he's also has some guys there who are holdovers. All you know how how they're going to be treated. You know that's going to be a big thing because he he can only bring in. 25, 30 players for a team of 65. So right. those guys he's bringing in are not all going to be starters. So, you know, like I say, he, he is a lot of, I mean, they talk, you know, we, at HBC we talk about family and all that kind of stuff. But, see, they need to look at it from a family situation. 
how are the young men who are already there going to be treated? Because remember, they're going to be, uh, well, in football, they won't be holdovers like they were because they're going to play in the spring. If they're able to play in the spring, if they're not able to play in the spring, that produces another whole problem to deal with. But the real the reality is, I mean, it's, it's on one hand, it's good that the, you know, that everybody is going to, is putting money up for HBCUs. And I think the young lady who gave, I mean, I, I got to still got to count it up, but, you know, she laid out a whole bunch of millions of dollars to HBCUs to include 30 million to um, Winston-Salem State, which helps in the grand scheme of things. But then I think she only, on one hand, it looks really good that she helped say, I think it was 15 schools, but what about the other um, 85? You know, what right. about right. those things? And, and the same thing applies here with, with, with Sanders. What about those, t- you know, you know, one of the first teams he's going to face will be in, in the 21 season will be Florida A&M. You know, and I remember he made this comment about, oh, we, you know, we, we bring in, you know, we bring in, the fans, we bring in the band, we bring in a, in a team. Well, you know, I put it this way. He can bring all of that, and that's all that's good. But, see, Florida A&M can wake up Jay Gaither, and the whole complexion is going to change down there. And if you understand Florida A&M football in the 100, I mean, it's going to be – off the team, it's going to be Rose Bowl. You know, this right. is our one of our our Rose Bowl, our Orange Bowl, or whatever bowl we want to call it, because yeah, because the, these these you know the, these schools were our Yales and Harvards and all those other things. So you know, so I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I just hope he can coach. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if he can get it done. Um, he certainly is. You know, Dion is a bolster. Um, so it'll see it'll we'll see if that boasting actually will uh, result in W's on the field. Fred, before you go, let people know how they can uh, follow you or reach out to you and your latest uh, your latest book. Well, we're in the process of making some changes on our website, but it's www.blackheritagereview.com. Uh, you can email me at blackheritagereview at yahoo.com or Fred Whitted. Six eight at uh, com, and we will be finishing up the history of HBCU football over the next uh, well starting again on Monday we will be putting the finishing touches on that book followed by um, the history of women's basket men's and women's basketball um, which will be out in late August late August let me get my time it'll be it'll be coming out in late January. Mm. It was originally well, scheduled to come out in time for the CIAA. Well, we we got to have you on to talk about both books and we'll have you on on the regular anyway. Fred, all the best, be well, uh be safe you and your family. Happy holidays and I'll talk with you soon, sir. Same to you and your family. Thank you. Always good to have Fred Wooded on HBCU, historian, author, blackheritagereview.com. Uh, Take a break, come back, get to our next guest on the Bachelor News Radio Show. Greetings and great day, everyone. 
I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. Don't forget, if you miss any part of this broadcast, go to our website, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. All of the episodes and the guests and interviews are on the Bachelor News Radio Show page. And we have other shows and music and uh, sports, YouTube, all of that at our website. Check it out. Well, back to the phones. I bring in my next guest, first time on, hopefully not the last. Um, he is, of course, of the Black College Nines. He is Michael Coker. Mike, I appreciate you coming on, man, and thanks for your patience on the line. No problem. How are you, L.A.? Good, good, good. I know you got to go, so I, I won't keep you <laughs> as much as I want to. Um, you wrote an article on uh, – uh, actually, we just had the discussion last week a couple of times uh, about Kerry uh, Jackson, uh, about his departure from Southern University and accepting a position with Major League Baseball. For some people who don't know, he's already had ties with MLB. But what does this mean for him in baseball? Um, was he, from his standpoint, what was he, you know, I know he had a losing record, but, you know, that's kind of, you know, goes with the territory sometimes when you're building a program. Um, but was he looking at pressure to leave from his standpoint? And then from baseball standpoint, is baseball looking at this as a PR move? Because I know he's in charge of uh, um, the, the draft. Uh, are they looking for it as a PR move and or uh, trying to bring him in to unofficially recruit HBCU players? No, this is what's going on with Garrett Jackson. Uh, it was an offer he couldn't refuse as much as he wanted to stay at Southern. You, We have to remember that Garrett Garrett Jackson was a uh, Division One baseball player. He started at, started off at Bethune Cookman, then he uh, left Bethune Cookman, and he transferred to the University of Nebraska, where he graduated in 1999. Then he became a uh, uh, an assistant coach for Fairfield University, and then he spent some time at the junior college level. And then he got back into Division One at Nickel State in 2006 and 2007. And then he also became a professional scout for the Washington Nationals. But then he, over, he oversaw all scouting aspects in, in multiple states like Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. So this move by Major League Baseball, you the, since the pandemic came out, Major League Baseball has has taken a major shift. They eliminated a lot of of uh, um, minor league clubs, forty minor league clubs, and the draft has been cut down to ten rounds, and it's going to go up to twenty. Now you have to remember that the draft 
was 49 to 50 rounds. That means there were 14 to 1,500 kids getting drafted. Because of the pandemic, because Major League Baseball was looking for ways to cut down on the draft and save itself a ton of money because Major League Baseball was spending a, a an astronomical amount on draft picks. And a majority of them weren't panning out. So when they made the offer to Carrick Jackson, and it was an offer he couldn't refuse. At first he didn't really want to make the move, but, you know, it, it was they kept coming at him. And he's going to be the right. uh, scouting director for Major League Baseball. And after talking to him about it, doing my podcast a few weeks ago with him, it, it, he made it clear that he's going to be getting the top-notch draft picks out of, out of uh, collegiate baseball. You have to remember that Division I baseball is minor league baseball. Let's 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 be honest with ourselves. And what right. he's doing is he has the task of getting nothing but top players. And and and, and I ne- I need to add this to it. Two years ago, he had a kid that was uh, HBCU's baseball uh, most valuable player that season. A guy named, named Tyler Laporte. And you know Tyler Laporte could hit. Oh boy, could he hit? He could play third base really well. So, you know, we had him on our draft board, but he didn't get drafted. So I called Garrett Jackson and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, what's going on with that and what's wrong? And he said, and he just came out and told me, he said, as, as, as good of a, as a collegiate player as he was, he was not draft material. And he said, I had to have that conversation with him. And I was like, wow. And, you know, and, and he's right. You got guys that are collegiate great collegiate players that won't make it to the uh, Major League Baseball draft. That's just the way it is. But what what I said to Carrot that day, the recent podcast we had a few weeks ago, I asked him, how is this going to help HBCU baseball? And he told me, he said, because of the draft, the limit amount of draft that they're getting, he said that what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at top talent. So that could help HBCU baseball. HBCU baseball gets a lot of draft kids, a lot of potential drafts. Uh, Major League Baseball, they do draft from HBCUs. I don't think that they're getting enough, but they are getting the cream of the crop. And with Carrot Jackson in place coming from an HBCU baseball, it's going to do nothing more but help. I mean, he's going to look across the board. It's not going to be, you know, he, he was a regional scout in seven to eight different states. He's looking at all 50 states, and he's looking at all levels of collegiate baseball. So I think he's going to be a massive plus for the HBCU program ranks. Just joining us, we'll talk with Michael Coker uh, from the Black College Nines. Uh, wrote a great article on Carrick Jackson going to, uh, from Southern as the uh, baseball coach to Major League Baseball, as the uh, draft president, if you will. Here on the Bachelor News Radio Show, Mike. So you made a you made a fascinating point. If baseball uh, is looking at great talent and saying, "Well, this guy was a great, you know, college player, but he, you know, he's he's not draft material." Why don't 
football and basketball do that? Why you see so many more busts in football and basketball, these high draft picks, especially quarterbacks in football, you know, these point guards in basketball um, of all walks of life that get drafted and don't pan out. Why do they do it? And why do they continue to make these mistakes in their scouting and drafting? And, and baseball has this different approach and certainly with him coming in, even a better approach. Well, because baseball has a different system. Their system of things is you have three to four levels of minor league. You have rookie, you have single A, double A, and triple A, and then the big show, which is Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is the only sport where you'd have to develop yourself. And a lot of that is, you know, you can have a, a, a college kid who's throwing 93, 94 miles an hour on the mound. But then again, you'll have a kid coming fresh out of high school throwing 98, 99. So who who would uh, you better develop when you have a window of an opportunity? In the National Football League and the NBA, they don't have that. Either you're a star from the jump or you're not. Major League Baseball, you have you have so many opportunities to get developed. And believe me when I tell you this, that they do everything they can to get you to be uh, the top 18% each year that's going to make it as a rookie. Because what that leads to, every year there's always a new superstar that emerges from Major League Baseball. And And those teams and those scouts, they cash in on that. That's the only sport in North America that has a system that develops players. So, but then playing um, devil's advocate, if they're going to cut back on drafts, wouldn't that minimize the, the opposite of, of, you know, the best of the best, but wouldn't that minimize those diamond in the roughs where you can develop? It, it, it could. But then again, you know, it, it took me a long time uh, this year to understand exactly what Major League Baseball was doing. Because it's true. You know, you, you, you get a kid, he's drafted in the 15th and the 20th round, you put $100,000 in his pocket, and a year from now, he's no longer there. Uh, you have to remember, um, Major League Baseball is set up as to where, you know, mainly when it comes to pitching. A pitcher has an out pitch, but he's got so many things in his repertoire that he can throw every pitch to this, the entire square inch of that batter's strike zone, but his main pitch is the one that gets people out. So with that being said, there's, there, the opportunity for kids to just get drafted and just put money in their pocket and not pan out, those days are gone as of 2020. Mm. Wow. You know, I I was having this discussion um with uh, Trevin and, and T-Mac and some other people about this move with Carrick Jackson and this position with this league. Are they unofficially, I know maybe I'm beating a dead horse, but are they unofficially trying to be, trying to do sort of what the NFL is doing now with the HBCU um, combine where they're, they're going to focus in 
on these historically black college university kids um, just to open up the doors and get more opportunities for those kids. Is baseball kind of unofficially trying to do that? You know, baseball has always been trying to uh, um, get kids, especially uh, from HBCUs or black kids, period. Let's not forget that before football and the NBA took off, our sport was baseball. And right. we were heavily recruited, heavily, not recruited, we were heavily drafted from HBCUs. As a matter of fact, nearly everybody from back in the day that played Major League Baseball and were superstars like uh, Ralph Carr, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, all of the guys that went to HBCUs got drafted. And then the glamour sports came with the sneakers, the shoes, the looking good, the dunking, the three-point shot. Black kids saw a different sport. But, you know, you have to get black kids to wake up and see. You go to an HBCU, you have a better shot at getting drafted in Major League Baseball. And let's look at, let's look at the facts. Major League Baseball has a longer longevity than any of those two other sports combined. You have guys yeah. that have gone on and were number one draft picks in football coming out of college and number one draft picks in, uh, for Major League Baseball, and they stuck with baseball. I'm, I'm talking about a guy named Jeff Massarget who spent 20 years in Major League Baseball. He was a tight end drafted number one out of Notre Dame, and he spent yeah. 20 years in Major League Baseball, and he made over $400 million in that 20-year time frame. Now, if he had, and, and if you listen to him talk about it, because he talks about it, you know, quite a bit, if he would have stayed and played football, he says he thinks he would have been out of football three, four years, you know, he may have blown all his money. But, you know, 40, $400 million is nothing to sneeze at. And like I said, Major League Baseball is a sport that prepares its players to succeed. You know, Mike, I, 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 as you mentioned before, basketball and football, I love the sport. Not only I love the sport, you know, I was dead red. I can hit a fastball. You know, I had a great arm, right field, played first base. Love the game and still love the game. Uh, even coached Little League, coached uh, kids, wanted them, coached my nephews. and But now I got kids and, and you know, they want to throw the football or knock down three-pointers. And, and I've encouraged them, hey, you know, let's go, you know, get a, get the baseball glove, let's hit the ball, throw the ball around, hit the ball, you know, uh, all the little basic fundamental type stuff, and they're just not interested. And, and and so I don't think that baseball has done enough um, to really reach out in inner cities. I, I mean, I understand the RBI program and, 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 and Ms. Robinson and how they do all of that. Um, I, I just don't think they do enough. So what do we need to do on our end specifically to, to attract to, to the kids and, and show them that this is a great game? And like you said, the longevity, the money, all of that, those opportunities are there. Well, the, the thing is, is that Major League Baseball has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the urban communities to get uh, uh, the best back players. You have black coaches, black uh, uh, men like yourself and myself 
who have tried to reach out to these kids. We can only do so much. At the end of the day, once they're around their own friends and their own peer group, that seems to have more of an effect than me telling a young kid, you have a better shot because you have an arm. You can gun down a runner at second, and you can hit a ton. But he doesn't think that's a glamour sport because there's nine innings to do that. And and mm. they, don't, they don't think that they're going to be in front of millions of people. And the heart, to me, the heart cell that I have with kids is the truth. A lot of them can't handle the truth or won't accept the truth until it's too late. Baseball is your better sport because you're being prepared at the minor league level. Even if you don't go to college and you get drafted out of high school, you still have that window and opportunity. From 18 to 24 is what Major League Baseball is their window. Because you got to remember, you got superstars at 22, 23. So the, the, the problem that I've been seeing over the years is it's no matter what Major League Baseball do, they continue to promote the Urban League, the RPI League. They continue to throw a ton of money to it. If a kid is not accepting that or doesn't want to do it, there's nothing we can do. I mean, we can keep going, keep trying to get them. But at the end of the day, I think Roger Cador, uh in, in a podcast I did with him five years ago, summed it up best. At some point in time, a kid's got to stop dreaming and realize what's reality. Mm. Just to follow up with that, though, do you also think uh, it has to do with uh, the elimination of programs in and, and it's City specifically. I mean, I, I go home, I'm in North Carolina, I go home to Connecticut and go to the old ballparks and they're not there anymore. It's just grass. They knocked it down. There's no programs. They, they, it, does that play a big part of it too? I, I never thought of it that way because baseball, is it, it, it revolves. I've never really thought of it uh, that way because, uh, you know, there's always new parks coming up somewhere in some city. Some of them are uh, the old parks kind of, you know, uh, deteriorate. Uh, I mean, I live here in Florida, and I'm seeing new parks all the time. And it, a lot of it is, is, is not the upkeep. Some of them, they don't keep, keep them up well. So it's kind of hard for me to say if that's an issue or not. But I do know that uh, from my playing days when I was a little kid, we, we did a lot on our own. We used to play this game called strikeout where, you know, you may have five or six players and, you know, you're up against a concrete wall with a rubber ball and you got a guy throwing 80, 85, 90, and you're trying to hit mm. it. And then if you wrote one up the middle, that was a base hit. If you lodged one in the air, depending on where it went, it was a double. And so we, we created our own fun, and that's what led a lot of us to play in collegiate baseball. So there, there, I, I – I think it's kind of hard to say if because one area is deteriorating and then there's another, but I know that there's a lot of development for baseball. It's just that our kids aren't accepting it. That's a great point. I never thought about it like that. You're right. My, my son didn't, I tried to teach my son to swim. He didn't want to learn until he saw his friends swimming and then he wanted to learn because his friend was swimming. So that's a point. I didn't, I really didn't think about it. From that standpoint, Mike. Um, final question for you. This has been 
2020 has just been, we'll never forget. And COVID-19 is the driving force for that. A lot of people lost lives and a lot of people gotten sick and and just people, just death um, in general. I bring that up because of some of the greats that we've lost in baseball, black ball players in particular, the Lou Brocks, the Bob Gibsons, uh, even the Tom Seavers. Uh, has there ever been a year like this that you can think of where just so many great baseball players that come from these schools that you talk about have passed on? Well, you and I don't know, don't take this wrong, but we can't live forever. That's you know, true. We, 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 make, we make a mark on our lives. We make a, a mark in lives, and we make a, a mark, and we leave behind that legacy. And, you know, the, the guys of the, my heroes from when I was a kid are dying. Yeah. I remember Lou Brock. I remember Lou Brock as a kid. I used to yell at him because he, <laughs> he, he played for the St. Louis Cardinals, and those were the rivals of the Chicago Cubs where I was born. But we had a lot of respect for him. Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver was a part of that team that came back and, and beat the uh, Chicago Cubs in the, the, the summer of 69 when the Cubs had the lead. Then they went into the Mets. dog days of summer, and the Mets came out of nowhere and spanked us. And the, so it's we're, we're losing our veterans, but they are up there in age, and uh, you know we can't live forever, but we have fond memories of them. I mean, you know, Ricky Henderson. I remember when I first saw Ricky Henderson play live, and he was a joy because he he interacted with the fans in the stands while he was in the outfield. Either he was clowning or he kept you in the game. Then he'd go still two or three bases every game. Those days are long gone. So I feel that it, it was a pleasure for me to be able to see a Ralph Carr, a Lou Brock. Uh, Gibson and Ernie Banks, a Tom Seaver, uh, um, uh, the, the, the uh, home run hitter, um, uh, what's that big guy's name? Uh, um, Mark McGuire. It's you mm-hmm. know, and 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 then you know you had Cecil, Cecil Fielder. Cecil Fielder was a big, massive, basically was fat, but he could hit the <laughs> ball a ton. And that's what you know. That's because they played the game how the game should have been played. They played the mm. game with respect. And you don't have that nowadays with a lot of young kids. They think that we owe them. That's why they should be make major league. No, we don't owe them a thing. You have to earn it. That's right. <laughs> and it, that's, just, that's just not a cliche. Those guys played the game the way it's supposed to be played. I, I got to ask you about my Yankees. They, I know they're it, look, it seems as though from reports that are miles away in terms of coming to an agreement with uh, uh, LeMahieu, and I know he's a priority. I, I know he is a Yankee, although he didn't come up through the system. He is a Yankee, should get paid. But Yankees, I mean, they they got issues in, the, in their starting. Their starting pitching is what they need to make sure they sure up. Um, so my question is, uh, what should they do? What can they do? Or who's out there if you know? that they can bring in. I know a Bauer's out there, but I don't think they're going to get Bauer. Um, but who do you think uh, they will bring in? It, and will they sign LeMayu? I don't think they're going to 
Personally, I don't think the Yankees should bring in anybody. I think they have the, they have a good pitching staff right now as to where you have to keep in mind that COVID shut everything down. They only played, what, what 60 games? Yeah. They only played 60 games. And the year before that, last seasons before this one, the Yankees were right in the thick of things. They made the playoffs. But you have to understand of the Yankee philosophy. They 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 have over two three hundred million dollars to spend every year, so they buy the best. Sometimes that gets you in trouble because you know if you got a guy who can play and he, you know, let him play his career out. Let him let him keep developing instead of always you know bringing somebody new in. That kind of slows the team's momentum down. I mean, the Yankees will always be a good hitting team. But pitching, you cannot win without pitching. So I don't think that they need anybody. I think they need to use what they have. But we'll see. Well, I I, I know Tony McClain's on the line now. Um, he, he's uh, joining us. And I know he and I think they need starting. I was upset when they let Sonny Gray go. And, and, I don't, and I'm not a big fan of Tanaka's, Tony, as you know. So as – Michael Coker and I were just talking about, um, you know, LeMahieu getting him done is important, but I, I just think they, you know, you, you got one stud starter, maybe two. And then you, at this point moving forward, they, it'll be five innings in the bullpen all the time. That's, that's the problem with major league baseball. That is the problem. Too many arms. And if you look across the board at games that are being played, you have uh, guys that are going into the fifth inning with leads, and then it gets yanked. And next thing you know, two innings later, it's a tie score or the team's down. Yeah. Uh, he's analytics. Ask Nate Snell. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. No, I'm saying ask Nate Snell about that. Well, the, 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 thing, is, the thing is, is that that – that it, it 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 really hurts baseball if you think about it, mm-hmm. because if you got a guy if you and it's it's I know I understand pitch count. I understand that you don't want to wear a guy's arm out, but it's funny when you had these older players that threw the same type balls, the same type mm-hmm. type strikes, and they lasted longer. And these kids are supposed to be ten times stronger, but they can't go uh, no more than five and, a, and one third of an inning. Yeah. And you got guys back in the day who was going eight, eight and a half, um, and, and, uh, nine innings. You know, back in the day, you only had you, you had your starter and a closer. You didn't have a setup man, a relief man, and then your closer. And so, that wasn't you know, that long ago. And that wasn't that long ago, Mike. It, you know, we, we make it sound like it was, you know, you know, back in the days when everything was black and white. But it's it's. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, when when the it the whole the whole thing of specialization. I'm, I'm like you. I get it, but now there's just it's just it's over managing. It's way too much. Um, I mean, I think analytics should be used should be a uh, a part, but not the whole. When you because you know, as far as I'm concerned. You know, Kevin Cash over, you know, 
analyze his way out of a World Series because, and I and, and the whole thing of oh they've done it like this all year and all this other stuff, you know, he treated the. I've said this before online, and I've said this, you know, he treated that like it was the middle game of a three-game series in Cleveland in May. It's the game six of the World Series. Yeah. I mean, you said, like uh, you guys are saying, not even that far back. I mean, we're the Dave Stewart's of the world. You know, he'll give you nine. If he don't give you nine, he's going to give you seven and a third, eight and a third. You know, and and then you bring in your closer. It's, I don't understand. You can't learn how to drive a car when you know the the first day you just put the key in, and then the next day you do something. Like you got to be able. These kids got to be able to throw. I think they baby these kids. I understand arms can go, but if you baby their arms, then when it's time to really pitch, they they you know they stink up the joint, Mike. I, I, it just doesn't make any sense. All these analytics. I, I, it's it's really that that uh uh what's the uh, GM in in Oakland uh oh Billy Bud Moneyball yeah, yeah. Moneyball right. that but it, it it's going on the cheap not keeping people around the Tampa's of the world the Marlins of the world um they're not keeping these kids around not developing them enough and then when they get great they they ship them off. Uh, it, it's just it, baseball is just going in a direction that is. They shouldn't be surprised why it's turning fans off. Uh, in some cases, because of that. But there's really nothing we can do about it because at the end of the day, they're still filling up ballparks. They still have their big time TV contracts, and and uh, everybody's really getting paid. I agree with you. Uh, it, 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 to me, the analytics was – I really don't understand it, and, and including the launch angle with a home run. To me, that's just a home run. Yeah. I mean, a home run is a home run. I don't care. You can sugarcoat it you want and call it a launch angle. It's still going to go out of the park or over the fence <laughs> no matter what. So the, the, the game has just changed. And, and because somebody came up with a computer-generated uh, data – system, and then they, they've taken it and run with it and, and make millions off it, but at the same time, Major League Baseball suffering from it. So mm-hmm. what do we do? Yeah. You know, maybe one of these days we're going to see some young, a bunch of young college kids, and, 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 and I shouldn't say this, but maybe we'll see some young college kids that just come out of there and start throwing eight, nine innings. Mm-hmm. Mm. That will be a, a sight to, to, to see if what happens. Michael, before you go, let people know how they can follow you and, and, and read your your, uh, your work. Well, you can follow me at uh, Black College Nines, at blackcollegenines.com. We also on uh, Facebook at uh, Black College Nines Facebook. Same for Twitter, Black College Nines Twitter. And the same for Black College Nines YouTube. Or you can also email me at michael at blackcollegenines.com. Or if you want to reach and have a conversation, you can also call me at 954-687-2095. L.A., it is always a pleasure talking to you, man. It is really yep. uh, just just having conversation. It is always a pleasure. At any given time, I will be more than happy to come back on your show. 
Oh my God! So say no more. I mean, it, I I had so many more topics I wanted to talk to you about. I know you got the other stuff to do, but uh, absolutely, I will be reaching out to you, sir. We'll get you on. God bless. Be well. I'll talk with you very soon. God bless you, and God keep you too. Thank you. Thank you, man. Michael Coker, excellent guest, uh, of course, of BlackCollegeNines.com, BlackCollegeNines.com on Twitter and Facebook, YouTube, and uh, you can email him at uh, Mike with BlackCollegeNines uh, um, as well. I'm going to take a break and come back. Holiday Spirit, and we'll get back with Tony. I'm going to ask him some of the other, uh, get some of his uh, thoughts on some of the things that Michael Coker said. The interesting point about why our black kids, our black and brown kids are not playing baseball or going to baseball as they progress in life and and through uh, middle and uh, high school and into college. We'll talk about that in just a bit on the Best News Radio Show. I'm 
to the show and happy holidays to all of you uh, listening wherever you're listening 646-929-0130 the number this is the bachelor news radio show don't forget the rebroadcast of all our shows are at our website uh, the bachelor news radio network.com back to tony mcclain of basn news room and tony uh michael before you came on was talking about you know and we've had this discussion a zillion times, but he said something different that should have been right in front of my face, um, that part of the issue of, or, or the trying to attract young kids, black kids to, to play the sport that we love um, is that it's not necessarily just about baseball, not doing their part, just about, just not, not just about, you know, former players or people that us not really promoting the sport, talking about how more longevity in baseball, you can potentially make more money in baseball. You have more opportunities and chances to make it to the top in baseball than the other sports, but also the peer pressure or the, the, the fact that if my son is playing baseball or he wants to decide to play a sport, and he sees all his friends playing basketball, guess what? He don't want to play basketball. So mm-hmm. that's where all his boys is. I know when I went, I, I got into football. Remember, I, play, I played baseball first. 
I only started playing football because all my friends were playing football, and that's where all the girls were. So I wouldn't play football. So, yeah. I mean, so that makes a lot of sense to his point. It's so, you know, and, and I think, you know, again, we're looking at it from our whatever age eyes as opposed to those 15 to 20-year-old eyes. And, and, I, and I think that's why it, it uh, stresses it, it, I shouldn't say stresses it, but it, it, it's, it's, it's disconcerting because we're, 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 we're baseball folks. And, and see, that's, that's the hard part to sort of take ourselves out of the equation because, as I've said a bunch of times when we've talked about this, there are a bunch of factors. You know, if it was just one thing or two things, the problem would be, you know, would have been solved years ago. And but it's it's a bunch of things, and 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 and, and the peer pressure thing is definitely there. And, and also, I think the other factor, at least to me, is also uh, who's you know who's pushing you into the sport or, or, or who's not pushing you into sports. If you're, you know, let's use Patrick Mahomes, for example, you know, um, his dad played his whole career in major league baseball, but right now he's the best, arguably the best quarterback in, in, in the game. Now I'm sure his dad, you know, had, you know, I'm sure he did the whole dad thing of putting the baseball in the crib and buying him a glove and all the other stuff. And he did play. But now, again, I don't know if it was a girl thing or a thing, whatever, but he eventually chose football. Now, I personally never saw him play baseball. I've heard that he, you know, but you can tell the baseball influence by the way his game is, by the way he throws, by the way he throws the ball, you know, and we see that with him. We see that with Russell Wilson, who also played baseball, and of course we see it with, uh, excuse me, with uh, Kyler Murray as well. But yeah, you know, it's almost like that whole, you know, it almost, it almost, sadly, it almost goes back to that whole, um, that that whole, um, what was the, that old that Nike ad from back in the day with the uh, with the Brave pitchers? You know, chicks did chicks chicks don't necessarily dig the long ball. Per se. Right, right. And, you know, it's it, the, the other factor is that, you know, when, I mean, you're still there, but when I come home, it's just sad. To, to some of the fields that we coached in and played in are gone. Like, it's just grass. It's just, and I think yeah. that's part of it, too. The, I think the inner city is the, the inner city leadership uh, in these communities have failed baseball. I, I don't it's, think it's, they, it, there's it, an interest to push. It, and again, it's, again, it depends on what we're talking about too, because because um, because for every neighborhood that does push it, there are a bunch of neighborhoods that don't. You know, we I, um, I you know our you know our old neighborhood. You know, we you know, the the uh, Walter Pop Smith League has been around forever, and there have been right. other you know, leagues um, in that area in in, in the area, but. It's um, it's a it's a it's a it's a whole different it's a, it's a different animal now. It's a different animal now, and I do think that these other sports do push their sports a little bit more than baseball does. I do think baseball 
is um, I do I do think that they are um, a little negligent in not pushing the sport as uh, the way they should. That's that's and, and I I think that that plays a huge factor into it because a lot of reasons why the kids think it's that these other sports are cooler is because they do push product uh, better. Yeah, they were they were better at um, I think ironically most recently in this uh, in the steroid era, if you will, were better at pushing the product, but they were pushing the the guys who were doing the dirt, uh, you know, the Sosas and the McGuire's and stuff. But you know, chicks love the long ball was the thing, and baseball was was that. And then you know, for every Russell Wilson and and, and Patrick Mahomes, you have a Samarja who had a a long career and made a lot of money and played football in Notre Dame. So yeah. Oh, yeah, he, sure, sure, he did sure. the opposite. You know what I mean? So yeah, it, it, here's it, that it, for every it, Patrick Mahomes have a situation like that. He said uh, recently he made over $400 million or something like that. And he pitched for 20 years or whatever it was. So that that's, that's a different example. And, but see, and see that, and see, that's also, you know, you listen to baseball for, and see that that's the quote unquote hook because you can have a long, you know, because of um, you know the, the 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 injury factor, that's always been the one thing that baseball has always tried to sell folks on, you know. But there, but see, there's also the other there's the other part of you know going through the minors and whatever. I I I always use the example of a friend of mine who I um played ball with in high school and he he want he pitched he wound up pitching locally here as well for a Quinnipiac college and then he eventually got drafted by the uh Cincinnati Reds and he did four years and I think he got as high as like double A and he just basically said I I, I can't do the uh, you know the bus rides the 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 he just couldn't do it anymore yeah, and he just, you know, it just, it just, it wore him down. And see, that's the other thing of all sports. You know, we see the guy, we see the guys who have the, the finished product guys. We see the guys that do make it or what have you. But see, for every, you know, for every guy that does make it, there's another 40 or 50 that don't. And see, now, with the way the NFL, I'm sorry, with the way that Major League Baseball has all but tried to kill the minor leagues now, which I which I still don't get, um, it it's tough. It 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 I, I think it's even tougher now for 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 ones that have to want to um, really 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 want to deal with it because it's a grind, you know, it, as. It's a great sport and all that other stuff and everything, but it is a grind. It's a grind that I don't think people uh, really, um, really get. And but at the same time, you know, you get you get drafted, you get signed, you make a quick hundred thousand, you spend some time in the minors, you can make a nice little, little living for a while, you know, and then sure, and then sure, decide like your sure. friend get out. Um, but you're right. It's it, you have to love it and want to and have the dream to make it to the top to, to stay in it uh, and stay in the minors for so long. Um, you know, 
you bring up the draft, and I know that they're cutting back on the rounds uh, even more, uh, according yeah. to uh, Michael saying. But he thinks that baseball's looking at it like this. Okay, we're going to cut down. So now um, we're really only going to get the cream of the crop. We're gonna, not going to waste a lot of time with a lot of uh, more rounds. We're going to cut the rounds down and go there. And he thinks that's going to benefit HBCU players. What do you think? You know, we talk, it's funny because I talked with him the other night, you know, after we were on the air, and I asked him, and then he's basically he, – he said he felt that way. I, I'm still sort of – you know, I hope it does. I really do. Like, like I said, I hope I'm wrong about how I'm thinking about this because I want to see the kids get a shot because Lord knows between, you know, hoops and football, you know, they, they don't really, they're not really given a fair shake. I hope because this, you know, because this brother that's running this uh, new league has a, you know, has HBO, HBCU background, I hope they did give 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 a shot, but I'm but I'm I'm always very skeptical, unfortunately, and and I hate to be, I hate you know I hate to be skeptical about it, but I but you have to be, you know you have to be realistic about you know how things play out, you know, so it's it's yeah. it's, it's, it's I'll you know, especially because now, with everything else with everything else, uh, you know, t- t- you know, sports is a microcosm of society, so if you cut back opportunities across the board it's going to affect us even worse in my opinion so if you cut down the rounds absolutely absolutely and see the thing now there uh, uh, mike also said and i'm sure he said this on the show there are kids in hbcus that are that are that quad but there but again surprise surprise they're not given the same opportunities as um as as like you know, let's put it this way, it's it and we and we've seen it in football or what have you. Say you sign a free agent from, for lack of a better word, say Vanderbilt, and right. then you sign a free agent from Elizabeth City State. In their mind's eyes, they've already said, "Well, we got to." We've got to, you know, retrain him and redo him and unlearn everything that he learned. Now, remember, they were saying this about the even the elite HBCU players that came out. Remember, all when 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 Steve McNair was the number third was the number three overall pick. All you heard was, well, he was able to do it for these small schools, but you know now he's got to. We got to relearn. He's got to relearn. We have to reteach him. Uh, it's 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 and see that mentality unfortunately still exists in a lot of these other sports. And 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 and, and let's be honest, baseball still looks at uh, non-white players as subservience to the game. So the whole thing of well, you're gonna have to be, we have to retrain you and all this other stuff. It 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 again. It's that I I just I I've always had a problem with that because ball is ball. If you can play, you can play. It's not a thing where you are. Yes, yes, there is a transition 
from the colleges, from, from, from high school to the colleges, from the colleges to the pros. I get that. We all know that. But it always seems with the black athlete, it's like, oh, we got to relearn. He's got to relearn and everything and anything he learned in, 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 in the HBCUs. And, and for lack of a better word, um, we've got to, he's got to be more into, you know, we've got to change him over so he can understand the, the right way to play the game, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, Warren Moon went to a, a big-time college, and uh, Steve McNair didn't, but they say the same thing about both. So and, you're right. And, and, it, and, it doesn't. That, and, and see, and that's my point. Because, I mean, even even like with somebody like a Jalen Hurts, all we kept hearing was, well, he really can't throw the ball deep. Now, I've seen Jalen Hurts play. I know Jalen Jalen. Well, I, I knew Jalen Hurts could throw the ball deep. So when he throws the ball deep on um, – on, on Sunday, where was all of this? No, where the hell have you been? Right, right, right. And, and you know that fat slob, and I call him that. I'll call him that to his face. Um, used to coach the the, the Jets and, and Buffalo and oh 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 uh, Rex, Rex, Rex Ryan. Rex Ryan. He said, "I don't think Jalen Hurts is an NFL quarterback." Okay, right. He says that all about all the black quarterbacks, but I. I like well, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's because well, see, even even after all these years, it's the same old stereotypes. It's the same old whatever. I mean, even even with Mahomes, who clearly, to me, is I mean, put a gun to my head, he's the best quarterback in, in in the NFL right now, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yep. And but but you but you will have people that have been like. Well, yeah, he's putting up good numbers, but you know, he you know, there's always because see, now, if and when B enemy leaves this year, more than likely B enemy is going to leave. So the first thing they're right. going to probably say is, well, he's not going to be able to you know do well uh, with with B enemy gone. Now, granted, that could be said about. Uh, any, any quarterback who loses a guy that he's you know played under for quite a while, but it it it. It, it's it's stung even more with the Mahomes, even with what he's done. Now, now, now remember, he's in his third year. He's already won an MVP. He's already won a Super Bowl, and you still got and 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 you know he got you know he's he's he got his money, which of course makes so so that makes him even more of a target as well. So yeah, yeah it's it's like he can you know. We've been talking. We've talked about this, you know, you know, for the last couple. You know, it's it's their Super Bowl. You know, they're going to repeat, as far as I'm concerned. There's nobody in the AFC right. can beat them, and the NFC is such a mess. There isn't a team in the NFC that I think could could could, could go in there and beat them, even just for one day. But it's the sort of thing where, let's say they get to the Super Bowl and lose, then all of a sudden, well, you know, maybe he isn't as good as we think he is, and it's like. Jeez, you know, right? But and and they already say about him, Tony. Well, you know all the weapons he has, you know. So it's all the weapons, you know. So so if he, he if he was on another team, he couldn't do the things he do. Look, you can have the weapons, but you got to have a quarterback that can, you know, make the weapons work. Sure. And sure. and that's sure. got to be said. But then, again, and then Deshaun Watson. Well, you know he's struggling, and he doesn't, 
you know, but he don't have no talent, but they don't say anything. Like I said, Guys, he, run, he, plus, the fact, can't plus, the fact, plus the fact he's running for his freaking life. I mean, he's basically been running since for his life since, he, since, he, since he's been in the league. <laughs> I feel so bad for Sean. And he gets popped, too. They don't call it. That. Again, that's another entirely uh, different well, story. Well, but know, it, again, you know, not not too much. I'm trying not to put this too too much of an aside, but I would love this if you know, and I know it would be a little tough. I would love to see um, the enemy go to Houston because yeah. I think he could be the sort of guy where he could make he could turn uh, he, he could turn um, Watson into maybe not so much uh, Mahomes 2.0, but he would play to his strengths as a because see that that's the other thing. Um, in so many, you know, it's how you how you are coached says a whole lot. You know, thank goodness for Mahomes that he's basically went in under a a, a, a guy who's coached a bunch of quarterbacks, Andy Reid. Andy Reid has been you know and you know you know say what you want about about him, but he's developed he has helped develop a bunch of quarterbacks in this league and, and Mahomes is, is, is definitely on that list now um because of it. Now, um you mentioned Warren Moon. Now Warren went through five different offensive coordinators his first five years in Houston. Still put up and numbers. It, yeah, but see, I mean I, I imagine if you yeah. had somebody that basically was just gonna be like, hey, you know, we're 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 catering to your strength as opposed to see, you know, when 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 Cam signed with the Patriots, my biggest fear was, are they going to play to his strengths, or are they going to try to fit him into their quote unquote system? Now early on, it seemed like to me they were playing to his strengths, but it seemed like to me after COVID. They switched it around, and they tried to fit him into uh, McDaniel's whatever, and I think it's shown. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why they've struggled uh, in, 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 in the second half. And, see, that's a fact that, you know, that's a factor. With that, to me, that's almost the number one factor with, uh, with quarterbacks because, see, now all the Jet fans – you know, are all crazy. You know, they're going to get Trevor Lawrence and all the other stuff. But when you've, you know, now, now there's no guarantee he's going to be there next year. But for, but, but considering that he's still there, if he, if, if he has to play under Adam Gaze, he's not going to be able to prosper. He won't last. No. And I feel, no. sorry, and I feel sorry for, uh, uh, Isaac from the Love Boat Lookalike interim coach in Houston um, because it always seems like when he takes a, a team over, it's in these type of circumstances. I think also the thing with uh, with him now, but see, see, he's up there in age now, so I'm under the impression that he probably doesn't want to be a head coach again. I, I just think, right. that, you, know, he's been, you know, he's been around forever. Now would be now now they clearly have played better under him, although they, right. they, 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 they hit a rock again this Sunday 
against the Bears of all people. But clearly, both sides of the line have played better under him. And remember, he's a defensive, you know, he's a defensive coach. So right. that was um, that 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 that's his strength. And clearly, their defense is better than it was the beginning of the year. I mean, it's still it's still kind of you know awful, but it ha- but they are they they have played better under under him. Is that going to merit him getting the full time job? Probably not. But I think again, I don't think he wants to be. The, the the next head coach. That's just my right. own opinion. Yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. He may want to, but you know. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he wants to um, either. I want to switch gears um, to another topic real quick. And I mean, first we've seen uh, the likes of uh, Deion Sanders, which I'll get back to in a, in a second. And in terms of uh, him having these programs and these tryouts and things. Now Michael um, Michael B. Uh, oh, lost it. Michael B. Jordan. I'm sorry. Who played in Black Panther and all these other uh, movies is doing this Hoop Dream Classic tomorrow in Newark, New Jersey. Is going to feature all these D1 HBCU programs and players. When you have situations like this, when you have people that are reaching out, using their fame and their money um, to bring out the best of the best in HBCU athletes, student athletes, how much of this will be, how impactful will this be in terms of the exposure of the programs and the exposure of the players moving on to the, to the pro level? I think any kind of exposure is, is good. You know, you know, you know, their motives. You know, we, you know, we, we can, we can speculate about the motives or, or, or what have you. But I think any time that you, that you can be featured and you're going to get exposure, it's going to help. It's, it's a, you know, one of the most unfortunate things that COVID took away this year was was that first uh HBCU combine. I think that would have been tremendous because again, it's about cuz that's the thing. I mean, again, if you're good, they're going to find you, but it always helps to that it always helps so that you're able to get that kind of exposure. And I know, you know, he may, you know, and I don't know uh, Jordan's background. I'm not sure if he either went to an HBCU or, or, or what have you, but it's, you know, any, any kind of positive exposure is, is, is good as far as I'm concerned. I mean, look, there's always going to, you know, there's always going to be folks that are going to be negative. It's, it's funny, two games in, I already saw where someone wrote that the experiment with the kid in Howard is already a failure. I mean, two games in, two games in, they're already saying, "Oh, this was a terrible mistake." How do you do? How do you? How do you? How do you evaluate something like that after two games, especially considering um, the the atmosphere that we're under right now with with COVID? But but you know, haters gonna hate, you know, all, all the time, all yeah. the time, um, and. and 
Actually, um, he went to Arts High School in Newark. He played basketball there. Michael Jordan, uh, just mm-hmm. as a, a a footnote there. Um, and I mentioned Deion Sanders, and you know, he's say what you want. I'm not a big Deion Sanders fan. I just couldn't get past the flamboyant ways and all that. And you know, some people are confident, some people are cocky. Though he fit in that. I mean, the ball. The, obviously, he could ball um, in football, mm-hmm. but I just didn't care for his character. But say what you want, he's been really pushing HBCU stuff and, and again, having the tryouts there. Now he is the new uh, head football coach at Jackson State. How how successful can he be? Obviously, his name and his Hall of Fame career um, and play should recruit. But is it going to resonate with W's on the field, or will he have to focus in more on getting quality coaches around him to make him and the program successful? Well, it's, I, you know, I made it a point to look at his coaching staff. So he's got folks that's definitely going to help him. To, to me, the real bigger question is how committed is he? Is he using now, is he using this, to get to a white university or is he committed uh, for, is he committed in the long run for, uh, for, for, for Jackson state? I think that that's the, I can't translate how that's going to play back on the field. I think they will be, I think though, when you consider the credentials of the kids that they're bringing in, they should be better. The only thing I worry is that, Somewhere the NCAA will be lurking about, try to end up punishing them. You know, that's 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 my biggest worry. Yeah, but, and it, um, you know, talk about it, nepotism, it, bringing all his kids there at Jackson State. He's not, I mean, you know I, what? I, but but see, he's not going to be the first. You know, um, he, he won't be the. He's not the first coach to ever bring his son to play for him, and he won't be the last. You know, John McKay had his right, son play for him. Right. You know, other 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 coaches have had their sons play for them as well. So to me, that's, that's not a factor. That's not a fact. Now, now, if they want to base that on that, then, 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 then to me, it's like, you know, then, then you're, you're, you're missing the point. Um, I'm anxious to see, is he going to now, is he going to make it about him himself or is he going to allow his, I mean, there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of questions that are going to, that are going to come, out of this. Now he's also got to realize that while the the attention works both ways, because there there are a bunch of established coaches in the swack that are saying, "Okay, I got something for that ass," and you know, we'll, and, and and they're going to want to beat Jack. Now they've always wanted to beat Jackson State anyway, but now they have even more of an incentive to want to beat them strictly because of, of, of the attention and, and, and what have you. So, you know, well, well, it's, it's, I look at it like this. If he's successful, it could wind up helping HBCU football as a whole because these other schools may, you know, I always go back to, you know, when Winston left and came back to the CIAA. We all remember how all the coaches whined about, oh, they got a Division One team. They got a Division One team. 
And then it took the commissioner to said, okay, y'all can whine all you want, but why don't you get off your ass and recruit and try to beat them? And see, there's no doubt in my mind that the guys in the SWAC, the established guys there, are going to be like, oh, okay, we're going to try to go out and get them and, and whoop their ass now. Not that they didn't want to whoop them before, but now they have an incentive to want to do it. So it could work. I think it could work to HBCU football's advantage, if not the swag, if not just the SWAC as well. Right. And the SWAC's got a lot of exciting stuff bringing in uh, fam. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. It's, I mean it's 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 again to me it's 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 a it's 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 uh, there there are a lot of folks uh, there are a lot of folks unfortunately that want to see Dion fail and I and I and I and I and I get it but you know my only thing is think of the kids. Think of the kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I want to end with this and go back to baseball. Um, I'm sure you, you heard a couple of days ago that now they officially in the history books. Not that we need it. Not yeah. that those players yeah. need it, but the, they Major League Baseball um, officially um, is recognizing the Negro Leagues and the the records and the stats of the, the seven operations that now now they classified as being part of Major League Baseball history. Um, mm-hmm. Presumably, you would think because of that, that now this opens the door for more Negro Leagues to get into MLB Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. Do you think that? And, and what do you think of the move of them doing this? this is, again, this is something else that mm-hmm. seems like yeah. baseball – on a broader scale is trying to do something to bring in just the, the, the black people because of, of, of our understanding and love of the Negro leagues and, and the history of the Negro leagues. I've gone back and forth with this. Um, I don't think this is, I, I, you know, I don't think this is major league baseball trying to um, bring in black fans. I, I think, um, they had an opportunity to do this back in 1969, and they chose not to. Now, I can't put that on uh, Manfred because Manfred wasn't part of that uh, regime and everything else. But see, this is this. But see, it's Major League Baseball as a whole. Again, I go. I go back to what you said. Um, they, um, they don't need. Um, an attaboy from Major League Baseball to uh, to to do their greatness, as far as I'm concerned. Right. The Negro Leagues are great on their own for the other now, and and and, I, and and you've already and I've already seen like you know the backlash, surprise, surprise, uh, of, of 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 folks, you know, um, and everything because you know the whole thing of you know all their records are still. Um, you know the, the the same stereotype that you hear that uh, that that was talked about uh, the Negro Leagues over the years. You know um, the, the 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 craziest one that I saw was oh 
I guess if you include Hank Aaron's home runs in the uh, Negro Leagues, that means now he's the, he's all time home run leader. He's he, he passed Bonds now, and it's like, <laughs> really, are we back to that again? But it's it's uh, it's sort of like when baseball has everybody wear uh, forty two on April fifteenth. And then the problem is still there on April sixteenth. That 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 that's basically how I, I I look at it. I'm um. I'm I'm on the whole. I'm you know big picture wise. Yes, it's sort of nice that they quote unquote give them their due, but they don't need your the the Negro leagues have never needed your approval. Matter of fact, if you didn't have the gentleman's agreement. And everything else, there'd be no need for all of this, quite honestly. So, and, it, you know, it, that, that's to your point, too, Tony. It's almost like Martin Luther King Day. Okay, you, you see the I Have a Dream speech and all these shows and movies and people talking all night. Next day, we're sure. back to being divided and, and, and everything else. And, and I, I look at it like this. He has a nice gesture, but guess what? See, uh, white supremacy and, and that type of the, the 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 establishment, if you will, they always want to make it feel like they're doing us a favor. Like, and, and we just oh, yeah, gotta go. Thank exactly. you, master. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you, master. Exactly. Exactly. And see that. And see, the Negro leagues does not need does not need um, the approval of Major League Baseball. It's been a it was a great league and it's still a great league. It's you know because they innovated a hell of a lot more. Than Major League Baseball did. They had night baseball before Major League Baseball. They bar- they they played overseas long before Major League Baseball. Um, the court, you know, they they innovated um, baseball equipment. You know, it was a catcher by the name of Larry Brown who actually came up with the the the, the quote unquote tools of ignorance as they call them for for catchers. Um, the 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 Negro Leagues innovated long before Major League Baseball did. And for them, again, for them to give them sort of an attaboy almost sort of 50 years later, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure what the motive was behind it, to be quite honest. I don't think it was a thing. I don't think it was a ploy of them to try to um, get black fans. I'm I'm not really sure what, what, what the deal was. To be to be quite honest, uh, I, I you know, but again, since they made since um, the Negro Leagues is celebrating their hundredth anniversary, it's a nice it's a nice little footnote. I'll I'll say that much. It's but a it, nice little footnote. Maybe maybe in maybe it's the climate. You know, maybe it's this climate of you know uh, you see Black Lives Matter and all these different uh, sure. things going around. You see corporations making statements, making moves. We see sure. President-elect bringing in a lot of people of color to his administration. Maybe it's that. Mm-hmm. I know we, we've got to talk to Bob Kendrick about this to see um, how he feels about it. I know John Thorne um, from um, Major League Baseball, quote, said, the perceived deficiencies of the Negro League structure and scheduling were born of MLB's exclusionary practices he went on to say, and denying them major league status has been a double penalty, much like 
that exacted of Hall of Fame candidates prior to Satchel Paige's induction in 1971, granting MLB status to the Negro Leagues a century after their founding is profoundly gratifying, end quote. Um, so it, it it's something behind that, and, and it could be a variation of, of things, uh, Chief. And, and and you know they're saying you know they're saying all the right words and there's you know they they they, they have the you know again like I said fundamentally it's cool but you know again you can't and again um you can't help but think that it's you know like you said it's sort of like you know here acknowledge this you know some some yet, people just read a couple of go ahead go ahead. I was going to say, some of the people that um, sent some uh, comments um, said, about damn time, they, um, they some typos, they, many of us realized how many older men we knew played in the Negro League could have totally beat the hell out of any major league team at the, oh, at the time. Furthermore, many of these men ended up going to college, et cetera, never to be heard from again. One, one other one I want to read to you. I know people may say better late than never, but uh, the MLB literally changed history as we know it with their actions. We may not be able to say what would happen, but we do know it would probably look a lot different in MLB today. Sure. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. It's, it's, you know, you try, you know, we try not to be skeptical about stuff, but it's it's just um, you know, I, I'm always you know I, I'm always a little skeptical when 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 things like this uh, happen. Again, like I said, I've gone back I, I I've gone back and forth with this you know the last couple of days that I've had that I've had I've been asked to uh, comment about this and, and everything. And like I said, on the surface. Yeah, it's, it's 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 it was you know it's a nice gesture. It's it's just again. See, I I I tend to look at the whole bigger picture. What is this going to mean, big picture wise? Right. That's, and you know, a couple of other, a couple other people. I always considered them as major leaguers. Why wouldn't I? They were professional. One person said. They said MLB, another person said MLB elevating the status of Negro Leagues is the problem, not the solution. Hmm. And one other person said black baseball is not less than and never will be. So. Well, and yeah, exactly. And see, again, it's when anything like to see the gesture in and of itself is okay, but you're never going to change folks' mind. It's 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 a lot like a lot of the racial policies, you know, as 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 we've seen. Even, you know, there are some there are there are, look, let's just be honest. There are white folks who look at racial equality as surrender in their in their right. eyes. And there are right. baseball fans that that say the Negro Leagues are, will, will never, no matter how many stories are written, no matter how many books are written, you know, there will never be, and there'll be, there'll be always be a lot of folks that will still never acknowledge the Negro Leagues for what it is. And you know what? That's on them. That's on right. them. And I, you know, they, they could, they could kiss the fattest part of my ass as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> they're, they're never gonna, they're never, they're never gonna, they're never going to be. They're never going to. Um, they're never going to. And, and 
I don't feel like I need to have to um, defend him, in a sense, you know. But it's it's it's. Right. I'm looking you're, at you're right. I look, they, I they'll never. At, I was gonna say this never. This will never change. People, the the ones who don't believe. Um, it, it two two ways some um, white folks will look at this. That they, they still it's still the Negro leagues. Don't make a difference. Or they're gonna say, well, yeah, well, maybe they now now they are legit. Now they're validated because Major League Baseball validated them. So now they are mm-hmm. legit. All of a sudden. Well, I, you know, and, and there's also the other thing. Maybe now, maybe some of the folks who were on the fence that really did because see, one of the oldest lies that that has been perpetuated about the Negro Leagues and. Full disclosure, as a child, before I knew about the Negro League, I bought into that as well before I got educated. Now, I'm looking, I, you know, clear, you know, I look at this through not so much biased eyes, but, you know, I have been lucky enough to interview about a dozen or so Negro Leaguers over the years. Uh, and, and I enjoyed every minute of those interviews because it, I, I felt like, it you know I I, I was I felt like I was in amongst history, and over the years there are many books there are many you know the funny thing is um, the baseball encyclopedia, which is which is which is come which comes out every year, they had already included excuse me they had already included uh, Negro leaguers about five ten years ago if I remember correctly so. Once mm. again, Major League Baseball is a little late to the party. Surprise, surprise. But um, the thing is, if this can maybe spark somebody that will black, white, or otherwise to say, hey, maybe I'd like to know more about these guys and what they've done. If, if, if it can spark that, then it's done its job to me. That's to see, I'm an information is power guy. And the more, I think, the more you realize just the contributions of the Negro Leagues, maybe maybe then you'll get an understanding, a better understanding. Because it's like a lot with, um, with, with mainstream media. For a lot of folks, their first introduction to the HBCU experience came through when the movie Drumline came out. And that's for mm-hmm. the black folks as well. Now, there may be some folks that may not have never even known or heard of uh, the Negro Leagues until this happened. Now, will some of them, will, you know, even if it's just a couple of folks that may want to just say, hey, I need to know more about these guys and, want, and, and see, you know, you can, you know, you take your ship down to uh, Kansas City. There's all sorts of websites. There's all sorts of uh, books. I have a, I, I have I have a bunch of um, books on the Negro Leagues. You know, I, um, one of um, one of my um, friends within the media is a guy by the name of Larry Lester, who is probably one of the greatest just baseball authors of all time. It, it, he now he now most of the stuff he writes about is um, Negro League. The, but Larry, Larry uh, is just a great writer, plain and simple. 
Um, mm. There's a one of my favorite books of his is it's um the the Negro Leagues began their uh, All Star game the same year as Major League Baseball. Matter of fact, they they played it at Comiskey Park as well, and it's and their 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 all their All Star game was called the East West Classic. Because they would, they sometimes they would have two a year. Uh, Chicago was the longtime um, site for it, but they played in New York. It was played in D.C. Uh, it, it's been played in Kansas City. Uh, it, it's been it was played in a whole bunch of places. But Larry uh, put together a book called the East West Classic. Uh, basically, it was a history of the All Star of, of the of the East West All Star Game. But what sets this book apart? Is that the book is is made up of the old newspaper accounts from back in the day, from the black newspapers that covered Negro League baseball. Matter of fact, the Pittsburgh Courier, uh, that's where folks went to go vote on the All Star teams. Much like how you know you see you know Major League Baseball, you know has the the voting for their uh, All Star games, but. Um, this has actual writings in there from guys like Sam Lacey, Bill Nunn Jr., Wendell Smith, great Negro League, just great black sports writers from back in the day. And, mm. you know, those are the guys that basically paved the way for us. So if nothing else, I think um, if, if anybody that's listening or whatever that wants to get a real good account and really get an understanding of what that era was, you know, that would be, that would be a real great book to start with. Uh, and what they do in, in, within that, they also break it down to what was going on that year. You know, like, uh, they, you, know, you know, the whole thing of, you know, Bread was two cent. You know, uh, 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 a brand new car was like twenty five dollars. You know, you know, it, it, it gives you, it gives you an insight on that era as well. But also, it it it, it gives great insight on the black newspapers of that day and how they uh, dealt with things and how they talked about stuff. It's 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 a I would always recommend that to anyone who wants to get sort of a early feel of what the Negro Leagues were all about and what they and what they meant uh, to the black community and and in many ways what they still mean to the black community. Yeah, a friend of mine um, took the trip to Missouri and uh, to the museum and said it was really emotional. Sure. That's how he described. Um, and sure. uh, you know, I'd love to go there and take the kids there and 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 feel that. He said he just you could feel it. You could feel it was like sure. you being there with those players on those fields, and that that's mm-hmm. something that everyone should have an opportunity to check out. Or at least, like you said, do your know the history, read up on it, listen to the audio, the YouTube has all that stuff, um, and see what it was like for those guys to play. Sure. Yeah. In the midst yeah. of all that, in the midst of uh, them being called porch monkeys and and all this other oh, stuff yeah. that they had, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 it and it's you know and I don't I don't want to go too far off, but like I'm the you know the movie um, the 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 Bingo Long Traveling All Stars and Murder Kings touches on it 
Um, that now I, I, I made it a point when I had asked a lot of those Negro leagues what they thought of the movie. I think he their their biggest problem was that they they thought that they focused way too much on the quote unquote shucking and driving as opposed to you know what they had to go through. Now, um, fact wise and everything else, it was pretty on point. There's mm. if you ever want to see sort of a definitive movie, HBO came out with a movie back in the day called Soul of the Game with. Um, uh, Drew Underwood, uh, Delroy Lindell, and uh, uh, Michael, um, Michael um, uh, Williamson. And, and Michael Williamson, uh, now, now um, Delroy Lindell plays Satchel Paige, Blair Underwood plays Jackie Robinson, and Michael Williamson plays uh, Josh Gibson. And you know, you know, Josh. Josh's story has been well chronicled over the years. Of course, you know, we had Sean on a bunch of times that you know dispels a lot of the myths uh, about him and how he felt about his career and everything else with the major leagues and everything. But this 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 movie probably deals with this a little bit. Uh, to me, it deals is a little bit more realistic than Bingo Long uh, was. Bingo Long was a you know, it was a good movie, but I think Soul of the Game sort of sort of hits it more. Let you know, you know, and, and, and the, the the most important thing, is, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make um, it doesn't make Walter it doesn't make uh, Branch Ricky out to be this you know Abraham Lincoln like figure that he's been depicted as over the years. Yeah, and you know, movies are going to dramatize, over-dramatize, you know, documentary, I mean, stories about people and, and things of that nature, but the facts are, are the most important thing. They're getting it right um, from former players and former writers and all the archive type stuff. I mean, that that's the most important thing, but it, it's 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 worth uh, folks going to, to, to check out, um, but whatever the methods is, I mean, the, the Rhyme behind the reason, as you mentioned, Tony, with baseball, it is good exposure for the Negro League, um, and they don't need to be validated, but it's another avenue where people can learn about them. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So we we hope that that is what what happens with that. T Mac, as always, I love you, man. I appreciate you. I'll talk with you soon. Enjoy your weekend, sir. You too. Take care. All right, man. Tony mm-hmm. T. Mac McLean, always good to have him on talking baseball, talking sports, B A S N Newsroom. That's it for us. We're going to leave you with some music, but don't forget if you miss any part of our broadcast, just go to our website, The Bachelor with a T, The Bachelor News uh, Radio Network.com, The Bachelor News Radio Network.com. Uh, we have The Bachelor News Radio Show homepage. You can click on the page, it has all of the interviews that we've done. And there's other shows there that you get to check out. The Donaldson Files, Locker Talk with Barry Barnes, the Dr. Larry Show, uh, of course, the the Life Cafe broadcast up there as well, music, all kinds of stuff there. The Bachelor News, uh, radionetwork.com. If you miss any part of the program, go there. Follow us on Facebook at Pad Nation. On Twitter, Pad Nation 2, YouTube, LA Bachelor, Instagram, LA Bachelor. And if you have a comment or question, you can email us 
at la at the bachelor news radio network.com la at the bachelor news radio network.com um gonna leave you with some music enjoy the rest of your time talk with you soon on the show One warm December, our hearts will see a world where men are free.
time you tell me you're beating. 